A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. If there's one word that in the last three years captured the imagination of many people in our congregation, but in our circles in the city, it's the word languishing. So there was an article uh, at some point in the last year or two written by Adam Grant who, who uh, put into popular vocabulary a word from the psychology word world. And it was a word that some people felt was an aha moment because it defined and sharpened our experience in a way that we couldn't quite um, g give words to. You know, we're feeling disconnected, we're unmotivated, we're, we're tired, maybe we're without hope, we're discouraged, and, and yet the vocabulary maybe we grasp for is I'm dying, I'm overwhelmed, but there's a little bit of guilt saying something like that when you look at what other people are suffering. And so uh, a, a number of us were floating in a way that finally there was a term that said, okay, um, you know, maybe we don't have something that would clinically be diagnosed as majorly concerning, but we're not, we're not thriving, we're not flourishing. And so that word helped define for some, okay, there's a language for, for what's missing in my life. Um, but it raises the question, wh why do we have the expectation that we should flourish. Uh, actually, look at the world around you, and it could often be hostile and cruel. And yet there's something in us that says we expect to, to feel good at times, even if we're realistic. We don't always feel good. We're not always successful. We could be very realistic about the complicated world we're in. But there's a certain hopefulness we have that, that there could be moments of excitement. There could be an ongoing sense of meaning. And certainly the Bible says what's well, right for you to have that expectation because God created the world and put you in it, created you so that you would have something of that. And yet the reality is we're, we're not always flourishing. For the next year, we're looking at the first 12 chapters of the book of John. And one of the things John tells us, he says he's writing so that we would have life. And what does he mean by that? Well, in John 10.10, 10, 
Jesus says, I have come that they would have life and have it in abundance, in fullness. Does it mean you're going to be happy all the time, that you're going to make easy decisions, that you won't have tragedy or struggles? No. But there's a fullness that we tend to lack that Jesus says, if you follow me, that will be increasing in your life. So we're looking at the first 12 chapters of John. Uh, why not all 21 chapters? because it would take two years, so it's just a practical thing. Uh, 12 to 13 is a natural break, and so for this next year, now through the spring, we'll go through the first 12 chapters, uh, and then at some future point, we'll pick up in the other section. But one of the things that we're gonna be noting is John's intention to, to breathe life into people. And one of the phrases that you see in John from the beginning is this concept, come and see. People who have seen something of Jesus experience something that then there's a contagiousness. They want others. There's this invitation, come, see this person. And the idea uh, that John presents is if we're seeing what God is showing us, it's going to be life-giving. So as a community, we weekly will be watching what is God going to show us this week about himself, uh, about his ways, that, that we can take hold of to find that it actually gives us the things that are lacking, a sense of purpose, a sense of hopefulness, a sense of meaning. So it's in verse 31 where, where the sum, it's, so I'm, I'm excerpting from the sentence, he says, these things are written so that you may have life. So here it, it, here's a classic Emmanuel move if you're going to be here for a while. I said we're doing a sermon series on John 1 to 12 and then we just read John 20. And so you just have to be patient. Sometimes that's a little bit how my scattered mind works and so you'll have to pay attention if you're going to be here. Some th things are sometimes confusing but we're beginning at the end, not the very last chapter, but the end of the gospel because he gives us a window into what he's trying to do in the whole book. So we're beginning there and the next week we'll begin in John 1 and then it will be orderly and predictable as far as I can tell. Uh, but what we're looking for as we go through these chapters is how is God gonna show us things that can breathe life into us? So as we begin this morning, three sort of major themes of the book that you can see are part of even just this kind of summary focused passage. Uh, the book is gonna show us things about God. I want, I want us to note today three of the big picture things. It's not comprehensive, but, but will set us up for the series. The first, is that God wants to make himself known. Uh, this book is written by John because God has shown John things and appointed him to write them. And John is saying, I've selected these things so that you can know the things that God wants you to know about himself, about his ways, about your life. God wants you to know him and about him. And, and maybe for some of you that seems obvious, but by experience, it may not always feel obvious. You know, one of the things that we try to do in our theological tradition is to say, we want to let God take the initiative. We want to allow God to speak first. Because uh, there's something about life in this world that has distorted us a bit. Our experiences make us skeptical, cynical, weary, self-protective in a way that then creates a lens that we sometimes misjudge God. So for example, uh, in our relationships, by the time you're an adult, you recognize that people aren't always straightforward. And sometimes relating to coworkers, relating to family members, it could feel like you're playing a bit of a game. You have to navigate this dialogue of what's not being said, and you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to watch out for ma manipulation. So then when something is at stake, like what, what the Bible claims, which is you can have life, but apart from this, you won't, the stakes are quite high. The fear in us, wait a second, maybe... 
Maybe God uh, is playing a game. And for some people, the experience of religion is precisely that. What are the rules of the game? What do I need to do um, in order for God to be impressed and pleased? How can I act so that some secret knowledge God would impart? And we assume that God is playing a game, and we don't recognize that God sent Jesus into the world because he wants us to know what's true. And by sending Jesus, it signals that actually the problem that we have of feeling like there's a game is because we're a wandering, confused people. And God doesn't want us to remain confused, but actually he's more committed than we are to getting truth and clarity. That where we're half-heartedly seeking God, or at least something meaningful that might be connected to God, God is wholeheartedly seeking after us so that he would show us things. And so as we go through John, John is not going to answer all of the questions you have. There's curiosities. What was Jesus like as a, as a teenager? So maybe if you're a, a high schooler, you may find yourself thinking, as your teacher wants you to, to be institutionalized, to sit and be quiet when you've got these creative capacities that you feel could be better served by not just sitting and listening. Well, when Jesus was 16, did he just shut up and sit still in the synagogue? I don't know. It would be good to know. I'd like to help you with your calculus class this, this uh, week, but I don't know what Jesus would do in uh, calculus. So that question would be helpful and beneficial, but we come to the Bible with a set of questions that the Bible is not always directly answering. What John is saying is, but, but God has a set of things that you need to know, and you may not know you need to know it. And so the questions you have are legitimate and grapple with God and there are answers and seek wisdom and study the Bible and work it out. Yes, God will lead you. And John is not the only book of the Bible, but John seems to be indicating, but there, there's a set of things that you need to know. So let God set the agenda for what he's going to say. Let God speak and let's spend some time listening and watching. Lord, what are you going to show us? So in verses 30 to 31, where John gives us a window into what he's doing in the whole book. He says, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So yes, there's a lot that Jesus said a lot that Jesus did. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record some of it. The epistles record some of it. The whole Old Testament anticipates a lot of it. But there are things that we want to know that we just may never know. But John is saying, but there are things that you may not want to know, but if you find them out, you're going to find is addressing the thing that is currently missing in your life. So it says, Jesus did many signs. And, and that language of sign in John already indicates God's going to show you something. Now, the word sign is indicating sort of the miracles. There's a series of miracles that John does. Now, the, the climactic one is the resurrection of Jesus, what we see here. But actually, we're looking at the first 12 chapters, so that's not what will be in our focus. There are these signs that Jesus does beginning with turning water into wine and ending with the resurrection of Lazarus, where, where God shows us things. And, and modern urban people think, oh, the miracles. Uh, that actually makes it hard to believe that the Bible is true because it sounds like God expects us to believe things that appear to us utterly impossible. And we remember if the Bible has been written for the whole world and all of time, there are me the majority of people throughout the world would say, we won't believe this so-called prophet unless he can demonstrate God is actually with him. <laughs> so for many people, the criteria has been, what, what will show us that you're not just some other, you know, uh, motivational speaker, 
the signs have been helpful for many, even if for you the idea that God did something miraculous is a bit of a struggle. The thing that may be helpful as we go forward is to say, but what is God showing us? Because when we think of the signs, uh, we think out of our own paradigm. And so if you want to build an audience, you know, you, you get social media to, to attract people to your business on the things that interest them, so then you could work in the thing that they're not interested in, that they're trying to sell you. So Jesus must be doing that. You know, it's kind of like the guys in Times Square that they, they could build, they've got one stunt that they're going to do, um, and if they do it, and nobody's watching, so they, their skill is spending 10 minutes building a crowd, and then after they've built the crowd, they do that one stunt. Some people think, oh, Jesus is showing up and he's saying, look, there's thousands of you and I've got five loaves of bread. Now watch this, people. Look, not only have I fed you, but there's leftover bread. And now that I have your attention, stop cheating. That's the important thing. Uh, that's the perception some have, that the miracle is just some thing that happens to grab our attention, maybe to impress people. John uses the language of sign. He's not talking about suspension of the physical reality or whatever kind of questions we raise since David Hume defined miracles for us. He's talking about something that points us to a reality that we need to see. That this Jesus is showing something of God. So if you take his first miracle, for example, we'll get to it in a few weeks, in Cana, he's at a wedding, and they run out of wine, and, and there's a social crisis. This is embarrassing for the host. And maybe there's a personal crisis. The party's not fun enough yet, and we want more alcohol. So whatever the case is, here's Jesus who is in the midst of this. And his mother says, do something, and he, he changes water into wine. So on a simple level, right there, if you're there, the question is, who on earth is this person? <laughs> uh, how did that happen? And, and it should draw you nearer. There's a simplicity to what he did. He's demonstrating that there's some power at work in him that's not an ordinary power. But then you stay with John, who's very simple, and, and you think about these signs, and then you realize God is showing us something that over the course of the whole of our lives that we, we simply say, okay, Jesus is, is set apart as somebody we should listen to. But then you, you reflect on the sign over the years, and you think about, well, what is it with water and wine? Why was that the first thing that John records that he did? And then you think about this idea of life and new life, and you think about birth. And not every, not every pregnant woman has her water breaking as the beginning, but there's water in birth and there is blood. And then John says, I was there as a witness to Jesus being crucified, and I saw somebody poke him in the side and water and blood came out of his side. The one who's announcing new life, a new birth. And then John in 1 John says, there are witnesses to Jesus, the spirit, the water, and the blood. What? The water and the blood are witnesses to him. But then Jesus says, I am the living water. And if anyone eats my flesh and drinks my blood, they will have life. And we find that then he commands us to baptize, that through water people come into the church and to remember the blood that he shed. And you realize that something he was doing at Cana, uh, I myself, I'm like, I don't fully understand. God is showing something profound and remarkable that I do not yet get. So I'm going to keep going back and studying it. And that's the thing is God is not trying to trick us. God's trying to grow us and expand us and show us things beyond what we could imagine. And he's patient. He'll begin. He'll meet us where we're at. But John is saying Jesus did many things. We haven't recorded them all. This is not simply a biography. God sent Jesus so that you'd have life. And in writing what I've written, if you pay attention to what God is showing you, if you're humbly watching, 
it's going to be life-giving. So that's the first thing that I just want to highlight. God wants to show himself to you because when he does, it will be life-giving. Now, here's a, a, a second a theme that, that we'll, we'll see as part of that, which is God wants you to trust him. That's clear from this passage. And maybe more emphasized here than I'll be emphasizing throughout the passage, but nothing is more basic to Christianity than faith. God wants you to trust him. And so on the one hand, God is the initiator. God will come. God will send Jesus. God will speak. God will show you. But he's not here to entertain us. He's not here simply so we could be like, that's amazing, and then walk on. There's meant to be a response. If God's going to show you something, the question is, what are you going to do with it? And the simple answer is, um, come closer and trust him more. See, see something of his goodness. See something of what he's promising. And believe in God's wisdom and power and faithfulness. And watch for that. And, and that's important to state here because um, this is an area where, where we're easily confused. We're self-protective. We're skeptical. And God's going to show us things beyond what we can understand. And there's a vulnerability there. And yet it calls for a response. Will you see what I've done and then as I walk forward, take the steps to follow me? That's the response. So John says in 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one, the Savior, the King, the Son of God, the very presence of God, the divine one, and that by believing, you may have life. And so this life that he wants to give you comes not simply through God's initiative, but also through our reception. And that reception is, is engaging ourselves actively of, of trusting, of learning, of submitting. And so what I want to do as we talk about faith just today is to highlight two problems with how we think about faith that may help us as we go into this series where Jesus is saying, uh, trust me, I'm going to show you things. The first is to think of faith simply as an unwavering confidence in a specific body of information. I think that's how many of us will think of faith, an unwavering confidence in a specific body of information, meaning, because that's actually nearly right, but it's not fully right. You'll have, you hear some people say, you just got to believe. Actually, you know, when you're downtrodden, when you're confused, just just believe is, is an act of the will that some people would say you should do. Jesus does not say you should just believe. He says you should believe in me. So it's not that faith in some abstract way is a good, but Jesus is going to show you specific things about who he is, what he requires, what his purposes are. So there's content to the Christian faith. So we need to learn as we're watching. We need to listen and we need to synthesize. We need to do theology. And that theology grounds us. But the danger, because faith is so crucial, is in our desire to execute a measure of control, which is natural to some of us, we confuse what faith is, which is to say, if God has made things known, let me study for the test, get the information, and then have confidence of who I am before God and my future. And the danger there where, where the message clearly is, by believing you have life, is the question is, do you want to stay static and, and see yourself currently at the climax of all you can know, or do you want to learn? Do you want to grow? Is it possible that God can show you things that you do, do not yet have the categories to understand? If that's the case, the process of life means at times you are going to be aware that there are things that you don't understand or the facts as you've put them together don't explain the full picture. 
And that could be very destabilizing for Protestants who say, as long as I have faith, I'm in with God. And the danger is, here's something I don't know, here's something I can't control, we think I no longer have faith, I'm filled with doubt, and doubt is a problem. Not knowing everything, not understanding your situation is not necessarily doubt. <laughs> and even if it is, there is a bit of space for it. If you are going to grow, it means God will show you new things, and it's not that, that uh, if you've been a Christian for a while that everything you believe is fundamentally untrue, but there's going to be a deepening that will require you to face life circumstances that don't make sense. Lord, these are the things I thought about you, here's what I did, and now this doesn't make sense. And for some, that's easy. I'm in control of my life. Christianity is not working. I'm going to dismiss it. The problem is for the person who actually knows enough to say no, there's something right with Jesus. But now, if I'm doubting, that's the unpardonable sin because the one thing I need to do is believe. Um, faith is not knowing everything and controlling everything. If you knew everything and controlled everything, you wouldn't need faith. What we're told is God is going to show you newer things, and that may be uncomfortable. But don't give up. Don't get discouraged by the presence of doubt, but use that doubt to drive you back. Well, where is the ground and where do I land? What are you showing us? What can I believe? So the first thing I just want to highlight in encouraging faith is not to think you need to know everything so you can pass the religious test. The faith is not in what you know. The faith is in the person who's going to teach you. And therefore, when you find yourself not knowing, stay with the person, the teacher, and exercise faith in him, Jesus Christ, and you will grow. You will continue to thrive. But there's a second problem I want to address, which is the counter problem. These days, some people see doubt as a virtue. And so we, we want to be careful there to say, well, on the one hand, we can't know everything, and doubt is a normal part of the experience. But there are some people who hold up, uphold doubt as the ultimate sign. And we have to be careful there. I think there are good reasons for it. One example of a bad reason is anyone who wants to control and manipulate you does want, not want you to have confidence in what you know. <laughs> and so upholding doubt as a virtue, you know, so when Marx says that uh, religion is the opiate of the masses, no government wants fundamentalists. <laughs> you don't want to encourage fundamentalists, religious people, because they insist that they know everything and you can't control them. What you want to do is encourage religious people who are filled with doubt. And so, so doubt as a virtue is not necessarily what God wants for you, but there are good reasons why some people highlight doubt, and here are two. One is the people who see doubt as a virtue don't have a problem with faith. They have a problem with arrogance, and that's right. So, so faith, having a conviction that something is true is not a problem, but there's a recognition that people thinking they know everything and not being opening to listen to otherwise can be dangerous. And I think we would affirm that, to say, yeah, you don't want to think you know everything and you're not open to learning. And the issue is not that, that doubt is good or that faith is bad. The issue is that arrogance is a problem. And so, so faith in Jesus should not be fostering arrogance. Let's be honest, in Christians it does, but, but the problem is not our faith. The problem is our arrogance. And so, so doubt is not a virtue. Doubt is something that... Um, Jesus doesn't want us to have. Verse 27, his word to Thomas is, do not disbelieve, but believe. He wants us to grow in our faith. He wants a more sure faith. But if Jesus is the one who's leading us in that, it must be a humble faith. So one problem with uh, doubt as virtue 
is we think of it as an alternative to arrogance. And we should be against arrogance, but we should be for confident faith. But there's another good reason I think some people are weary about faith and, and want to see doubt as a virtue, and it's to be compassionate to real people who are struggling with doubt. So Jesus doesn't define doubt as good to say, that's wonderful, go with it. He's saying the doubt is not good, but he's not saying that your doubts disqualify you uh, or that he will lose patience with you, which is why the Thomas story is so helpful. If there's anyone that should have had unwavering confidence, it's Thomas. And I say that because Thomas, Jesus appointed 12 individuals to see, to listen, and to be witnesses. Thomas was one of them. Thomas overslept the previous week. I don't know what happened. I don't know why he wasn't there. But on the first day of the week, the church gathered. Thomas wasn't there. I'm sure there could have been a good reason, but Jesus shows up. Nobody was expecting it. Well, we knew he was going to come in the spirit, but holy cow, there he is in the flesh. Thomas, where were you? Jesus, alive from the dead, appeared, and Thomas doesn't believe. And that should be striking because Thomas spent years with Jesus, and Jesus spoke about his resurrection, and in that moment, he didn't have the categories. I don't understand what you're saying. Jesus appeared. But God's model is Jesus called a number of witnesses who then would see and tell others, and it immediately fails. Thomas shows up to the other apostles who say, we saw Jesus, and Thomas says, I don't believe it, just like any of us reading the Bible. Well, this is the words of the apostles. <laughs> I don't believe it. So here's Thomas, not only going to be an apostle, but not believing the current apostles. And yet, it's this helpful moment because uh, it's easy to dismiss Tom, Thomas, known as the doubter, as the unsophisticated simpleton who just wouldn't get it. And often what you find is the person who doesn't easily believe it is often the person who's most insightful in thinking. And it's not that Thomas didn't trust Jesus or the people around him. He didn't yet know what they were claiming. So when they say, we've seen the Lord, you know, I don't know what they believed, but most ancient societies believed in ghosts in some form of life after death. So we might say, oh, these really stressed people under duress are, are, so, uh, are so missing Jesus and so worried that they, they saw you know, a flash of light, somebody walking by with a candle, and they thought that that was Jesus. Uh, so we would explain it psychologically. In the early cultures, yeah, sure you saw Jesus after he died. I saw my grandmother a few weeks ago. So Jesus appeared at your meeting, no big deal. Thomas says, unless I could see the wounds, if I could touch him, then I will know this is not simply some claim that Jesus died, but he's back as the magic spirit of the sky. But he claimed he would be raised. If I can't touch him, I don't know that I can trust what you're talking about. And then at the second church gathering, the second Lord's Day, the eighth day after the first appearing, the church gathers and Jesus shows up again physically. And so he appears to Thomas, and, and there's Thomas who sets criteria that's a little bit too strict. Uh, in verse 25, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. There's his criteria. Unless these conditions are met, are met, I will never believe. I need to see what they're claiming I need to touch. And as is often the, the the reality, we set this test for God, and we don't know what we're doing. And so Jesus shows up, and Thomas sees him, and there's no indication from the passage that Thomas touches him. Unless I touch him, I will never believe. 
Jesus appears and says, okay, Thomas, here I am. And his response is, my Lord and my God, he believes. He set a criteria that actually he was testing God and, and God graciously shows up in the midst of his confusion, in the midst of his doubts, and he meets and encourages Thomas. And, and so the, the very helpful and encouraging thing about this passage is not Thomas. Some people in their confidence will say, there's the super, you know, Thomas didn't get to write one of the four gospels. That's what happens when you're a doubter. Should have been there, Thomas. You should have believed. Be like John, the beloved disciple. And then the other thing is, oh man, is it amazing? We need more people like Thomas who are utterly confused and don't believe anything. The passage doesn't say, look at Thomas. The passage says, look at Jesus and what he does when he shows up among his people. He comes patiently. Uh, you're having trouble believing? Well, what can I do to help you? <laughs> what is the criteria that, that would help you believe that I want you to have life? And that's the thing John is trying to show us. This is the nature of the God that we serve. This is the nature of Jesus who is sent. All of us are struggling. We're all foolish. We're all trying to grasp at things. And some of it is we just don't know enough. Some of it is we don't want to believe enough because we don't like the implications. If you want life, God says, I've sent Jesus to give you life, but he will show you things. And one of the things that he's going to show you is you're okay in your current imperfections. So don't worry about meeting his standard. But believe when he invites you to follow him that if you follow, he's going to grow you. He's going to change you. He's going to take your doubts and your confusion, and he's going to clarify things, not to make you the next Jesus who knows and can do everything, but to make you a follower who is like Jesus, filled with humility and grace, but a confidence of what life has. And so faith is needed. And so here's the third thing that I want to highlight from this passage as we begin. So God makes himself known. God wants you to believe him. Uh, but here's the last thing, which is God gives life. This is what I've been saying all along. This is what I will be saying. But we need to grasp that God gives life. So in Genesis 1, that's where we meet God. God uniquely is able to give life. Next week, John 1, the language of Genesis, when God is doing new creation, he's doing again what he did in the old ages. But it's going to be making things new. It's going to be regenerative. So God wants us to have life. That's his purpose. And so in the Thomas story, in verse 29, Jesus appears and says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And there's a simple explanation for why we don't see Jesus and why we can't put our finger in his side. The plan from the beginning is that Jesus would ascend into heavens in his body, but he would pour out his spirit so that he would show us things. And so every five years, Jesus doesn't need to show up so we can touch him and have faith. But what we're told is there are those who have seen but God will still show you things, but, but he's going to do so by opening your eyes. And so blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God's purpose is to bless us with life. And he speaks to struggling people. Jesus anticipates, Thomas, you should have known and you didn't know. Well, there's a whole world of people that are going to have trouble understanding the Bible and believing its authority. And yet if they do, there will be blessing. They who did not see but yet believe we'll have life the same way that Thomas and John and Peter and these other had. And so what's helpful about this story is it shows us the uniqueness of Christ, how the blessing comes. Because he didn't appear as a ghost, nor did he appear as the perfected king that everybody hoped for. But he appeared as the crucified Messiah. 
There's something there. Why did Thomas want to see a risen Jesus who still was wounded? I don't know. That's the project for the next 10 years to figure that out. But there's something there about the same Jesus who was full of compassion, the same Jesus who humbled himself, and he didn't take on a lavish life, and he didn't have servants, and he didn't demand that we be like the other rules of, of the world. This same Jesus who was wounded for us has now been raised to life so that he can give us life. And those two realities are utterly unique in Jesus. The reason Thomas could have confidence in that the 21st century human being should say, if there's one person I'm going to fully trust, let it be Jesus Christ. Not simply because God sent him, not simply because the Bible and the apostles and prophets bear witness to him, but reasonably to say the one who came and laid down his life for me is not playing a game. I can trust him. And the one who was raised and has power is offering something that nobody else could offer. So when Jesus says, follow me, what we find is he's saying, you can trust me. I'm not here to wound you. I'm here to take you and your wounds and to heal you. I'm not here to do a trick so that you see that life is some different thing. I'm here to give you actual life. And therefore, Thomas has a window into the one who blesses us because he bears the curse for all of our sins and shortcomings, and he dies a miserable death of rejection. And he says, I'm identifying with you so that the rejection that you've experienced or fear I will take so that the life that only I have the power to give, I will give to you. And the confidence that God actually wants that for us. He's not playing games. He's not trying to keep things hidden. He's not trying to manipulate us. He wants that for us more than we want is what should be a life-giving confidence to say, you know, today can be different. If that is the nature of God, is God is, if God is for me in that way, then what challenge am I facing that I don't have answers to that I can't control? Can I have a confidence that I'm not going in alone? I don't need to fix everything. I don't need to figure any, everything out. But God, who came to be with me, now if I walk with Christ, I will be changed. And so Thomas's confession, I think many people, no matter what their belief is, we see Jesus alive from the dead, people would say, oh God, you know, that's just an expression. That's not what he says. He says, my Lord, my God. The creator of the universe, the, the one who from the beginning made all things, has drawn so close that now he's not simply the Lord appointed by the Father, but he is my Lord. He's not simply the God who can do all things, but he's my God. And that's where Thomas, who I would say might be a little bit more sophisticated that we give him credit for, didn't want to believe something superficial. He found he believed uh, through Jesus Christ the one thing that brought everything in the scriptures and in history together. That's what we're invited into. And so when he says, my Lord and my God, that picture for us, uh, it's not just about believing the information of Christianity, but trusting that if I walk with this Christ, there is life to come. And that's what we should want. And, and so there's a story that uh, I heard this week and that I was thinking about. So, so, so with the queen dying this week, there's all sorts of tributes and stories. There's one story that stood out to me. I imagine some of you have heard it or read it, but it came from Richard Griffin, uh, her security, uh, I don't know, head of security, some police officer that sort of is with her as the private guard. He said at some point they were at her summer home and she wanted to go out for a picnic. And so you bring your security with you because you're the queen of England and they, they wander off wherever they're gonna go and they're having their picnic and two American tourists come by and strike up conversation and the queen is talking with them. And so they're asking Queen Elizabeth these questions. Where are you from? She says, London. Do you come here often? Well, I've been coming here since I was a girl. And then they apparently, you know, they read the, the guidebook 
Hey, in this region, we understand the queen has a house here. Have you ever seen the queen? And Queen Elizabeth says, pointing to Richard Griffin, he's seen her many times. And they get so excited, they hand their camera to the queen, stand next to Richard and ask her to take a photo. So he takes the photo and then takes the camera and says, let me get a photo of you with the queen. Well, it's so nice, we met this old English woman. They get a photo, they walk away, uh, and Queen Elizabeth says to Richard, she says, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when their American friends recognize me in that picture. Could you imagine these people going home excited? We met somebody who met the Queen. <laughs> and then seeing in this photo, yes, there would be embarrassment, yes, they, there would be regret, but I think they would mostly be like, for the rest of our lives, here is us with the Queen of England. Uh, John is the beloved disciple. Come, listen to me. I was with Jesus. Pay attention. And some of us may, may see John, who wrote the book of Revelation, who had these great revelations. What we can learn from John, what John is saying is, uh, I'm going to show you things, but don't come and stand next to me. I'm going to show you Christ and go stand next to him. And the thing is, you don't know who you're standing next to yet. But as you find out, as you pay attention to just who this person is, not only is it going to give you life in the grand eternal sense, but, but it's going to start to stir in you a changed reality. He's saying, believe in him, join your life with him. If you were standing with Christ, over the long term, we should not be languishing, we should not be failing. We're human beings and we will. There's no guilt in that. This year, there's the opportunity that as we come together prayerfully, Lord, Friday, Saturday night, Lord, show me something tomorrow. Sunday morning, don't just show up at church, show up saying, Lord, what is it you want me to see? And as he shows you himself through Jesus Christ, what we are told is he will be giving you the life that you want. And so let's, let's seek life in Christ together this year. Come, see, live. That's the title of this series, uh, Life is in Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, we may be more confused than Thomas, we may be more foolish, we may be more stubborn, and yet you announce a blessing over those who didn't have the access, the resources that Thomas had. And Lord, here we are, more than 2,000 years later. Uh, thank you that you want to give us life, that, that all of the things we long for and we're striving for but are not satisfying us, you're gonna give us something else. We don't know what that is, but help us. Lord, for those who are learning right now through struggle, through confusion, we join with them and pray against their fear and their doubt and pray for the kind of faith that is life-giving. And we pray for all of us who have questions, who need to know more, who are troubled by things. Lead us by your Spirit so that we would see what's true. Lord, may we as a church grow in grace and faith, and may all who are with us today, whether they're only with us for today, uh, this year, show things to us all so that in believing what's true, we would receive the life that you desire us to have. Uh, thank you for grace and favor. Be at work in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.